Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared creates collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face.
Thanks for having me, David. Well, yes, by profession, I am a, a theologian, and that means that I get to teach uh, graduate students classes in Christian theology, and then I also get to teach classes that bring together uh, theology or Christian faith into conversation with the arts. So I have a course on uh, the, the calling of artists, the vocation of artists, what, what does it mean to be an artist in the world. I have a course that looks at uh, theologies of beauty. I have a course that looks at the intersection between theology and science fiction and other things like that. So I, I thoroughly enjoy my job. I love what I do, and I'm grateful that I get to do what I do. And I'm also married uh, to a, a good woman named Phaedra, who is also a professional visual artist. And so I get to see up close because she has her studio at home and the kind of work that she makes. And then we have two kids. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yes, I am. I am. Yeah, but, but yes. Well, thank you very much. I, I confess that I'm I'm a latecomer to being uh, a fan of you too. I, I was born and raised overseas in Central America. And so I think I was just off the radar of all cool things in popular culture and in, in, in uh, Western society. But eventually I discovered them. And uh, my first tape of theirs cassette tape was the, the Joshua tree. And um, so let's see fall of 2014, uh, I had this idea to bring together U2's frontman, Bono, and uh, the author of, of the, the translation of the Bible, The Message, Eugene Peterson, who recently passed away, into conversation about some thing that they had in common, which was the Psalms, and a uh, long story, long, very complicated, um, strange story short. We finally found one uh, afternoon on April of 19th, 2015, that they could both meet. And so we met in, in Eugene's home in Lakeside, Montana, a very small town in, in Montana near Glacier National Park. And you 2 was at the moment practicing in Vancouver, actually, rehearsing for the start of the, uh, their tour, Songs of Experience. And so Bono flew out. And uh, he and Eugene and his wife, Jan, had about an hour together conversation. And I had the two of them on conversation uh, on camera. And uh, it was a wonderful, wide-ranging uh, conversation. But I focused on their thoughts about friendship, what it meant to, to be a friend um, in general. Uh, and Bono has said repeatedly throughout his life that he regards friendship as, as one of the two sacraments in his life, music being the other of them. And by that, I, I think he means that it is a vehicle for grace, for, for God's grace in his life. And that's how he describes his marriage, as his profound friendship with Allie. It's how he describes his relationship with his bandmates and a few others. Um, and um, that was wonderful. And then the Psalms uh, being another topic that Eugene has written about. And obviously Bono has 
sung about. And then um, a couple of days later, when I was back in Houston, Texas, waiting for my bags, uh, I get this email, uh, which happens to be some, from somebody with the initials PDH. Uh, and I didn't know who that was. And then eventually discovered that was Paul David Houston, AKA Bono saying, Hey, thanks so much for everything. Uh, apologies that I didn't bring my a game. I'd like to make it up to you. So long story short, we ended up doing a second interview in New York city a few months later. And it was just a fantastic conversation with him where he certainly brought his a game very thoughtful, very intelligent reader of the Psalms. And then those two uh, film uh, <clears throat> material, uh, they, they resulted in the short film. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. <laughs> well, because I'd actually had um, a short interview with Eugene when I was in Montana, where I asked him just a series of quick uh, questions that I wanted simply one word answers. And so I thought I'd replicate it with, with Bono and Bono found it immensely difficult. And so we did one take uh, of that series of questions and, and he just could not bring himself give me short answers. So we did the whole thing a second time. <laughs> and through the magic of editing, it looks like he was uh, spot on, but uh, he, well, he was, you know, he was spot on. It was just, it took a couple of tries to get to those simple answers. Oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Right. Sure. Well, this this may seem all, all too predictable, or maybe predictable for someone like myself, but I'm gonna have to go with forty, and uh, I still haven't found what I'm uh, what I'm looking for. And maybe the predictability of my answer is that they relate to biblical texts, one being Psalm 40 and the other being St. Paul's language um, in one of his letters. And so, granted, I, I naturally gravitate in those directions, but I, I think to whatever extent I, I have, um, I guess, historically struggled with doubt um, in, my, in my life at some periods more substantially and more traumatically, I guess, than others, uh, I, I find those two songs, uh, they make good sense of, of my experience, of, of my own faith, and they provide language that name, you know, my reality and help me to um, live into it in, in a deeper way rather than escaping it. Sure. <laughs> right. 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 Mm. Mm. I know.
Mm. Sure. Right. 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 Oh, to be sure, you know, I mean, Bono and his friends, you know, when they were teenagers, they had this, you know, mentor teacher figure who eventually became a chaplain for their band for 40 years, uh, Jack Heathcliff, uh, from a very early, you know, time in their life, maybe being Irish, uh, uh, brings them into contact with religious subject matter naturally, as it were. But, you know, I, I think it's always been a very genuine thing for Bono. Um, you know, certainly one of the things he talks about in that short film is how, how much honesty matters to him in his relationship to God, how much honesty matters to him in his work as an artist, how much honesty is something that causes him to be drawn to the, to the Psalms. And I think any time we encounter an artist who, as best as they can, is honest with themselves, which is an extraordinarily difficult thing for any of us to do, and, and virtually impossible to do it on a, on a consistent basis, as we're always turning some kind of blind eye to our own defects. <laughs> but you see that you know, he really does struggle to maintain um, or, or to retain a, 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 a posture of of honesty in his own life and his marriage, uh, in his, in his relationship and his work, you know, global work, philanthropic work, uh, social justice work, but there in, in crafting of songs, he is not only a master craftsman, he has definitely honed his craft. They are master craftsmen as musician. Everything that they do in their concerts is so deeply artfully, carefully done. All of those things, you know, come together to create this, you know, this amalgam of extraordinary art and in a sense, if I may, hopscotch over to the language of beauty. One of the things that the Thomas Aquinas talks about, uh, sort of this defining characteristic of beauty is this capacity to <clears throat> be whole, that, that, that when we encounter something that is beautiful in the world, whether it's a person or an experience or a meal or a, a work of art, what we're encountering is wholeness. And, and that's the sense that everything about it holds together perfectly. There, there's nothing missing. And that can describe a perfect cup of, of tea, you know, tea and toast, or a, a five-course meal, or some very simple lyric, uh, or limerick, or, you know, a, a gorgeous work of a poetry by T.S. Eliot. And I think that's what you encounter when you go to, a, say, a YouTube concert is every aspect of it and the, and the whole of it together is the sense that you're encountering this wholeness aspect of beauty. And if I can then marry it to something that is distinctively Augustinian, that is when Augustine writes about beauty, he tends to emphasize the way in which beauty evokes desire in us, that awakens us in us a desire for that thing that we're encountering, and it awakens in us a desire to go beyond that thing, which is why you then get so much of this language of, of like transcendence, right? It's something that calls us beyond ourselves, whatever that may be. And I think that's what you have in an acute way in U2's music and concerts is this encounter with beauty that causes people to come outside of it. It's an extrinsic, eccentric experience. You're outside of yourself. 
Yes, I, I, I think the answer is yes, and then more so. It's a desire for something truer, something better, you know, like the, the, the fulfillment of all that is good, something more beautiful, a beautiful life that is well-lived, a just life. That's why so often justice and beauty are talked about uh, together. Certainly there's a desire for God, and if somebody does not believe in, a, in God, they certainly believe that there is a way that the world ought to be, and the language of beauty provides them, you know, language, maybe a philosophical category to describe um, that human aspiration. And uh, so, yes, and that's why I think, <laughs> at least as a Christian theologian, that the arts and, and things that are beautifully made are for everyone. Uh, it, it is not for the few. It is not for the privileged. It is not for the elite. It is not for those who can afford it. It, it should be and ought to be a gift for everyone at every level, no matter what your cultural or social context may be, no matter how much money you have or where you live, <clears throat> that it is a gift. And again, as a theologian, I would say it is a gift that God gives to us and trusts to us in the small, ordinary, quotidian work of our home life, you know, our private lives, as well as in our public, you know, life and in the public square. say that the experience of a work of art or the power that resides in a work of art uh, occurs at multiple levels. One level is going to be the experience of the person who's making it. Um, when I write a play, there is an, the artfulness and, and, and the satisfying experience of making the work. It's what I bring to it. It's my intentions. It's my hopes. Uh, you know, when Childish Gambino, a.k.a. Danny Glover, um, makes, you know, writes a song, This is America. And again, for me as an American, there, there's something powerful about this song. But he has a very particular context that he brings to it. But then once the work is made, it exists in two forms, the musical form and then the video form. And that has another kind of power uh, that exercises itself in the world. But then the third is the reception. You know, I as an audience member, whoever I may be, whatever ethnic, racial, cultural, uh, national background that I bring to it, I'm going to see myself in this, or I might not see myself and so really you have all these different stages or contexts at which a work of art is art, uh, is artful and exercises its power. And, and, and I think it's important that we attend to all those because sometimes to ignore these different contexts is maybe to flatten the experience of art in a way that is unnecessary.
Sure. Right. Sure. Oh, very much so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Wow. Sure. Hmm. Hmm. Sure. I mean, I, I guess I would say and I'm writing a book that will, will come out in, in, in the summer. And one of the questions I ask is, if you were to open up the engine, you know, on each medium of art, and you would look at the engine of poetry or the engine of architecture or the engine of, of dance, how would you describe it? What makes that, as it were, machine be uniquely itself? Like what, what is the logic of the movement of bodies when you experience or, or, or spectate a, a, a ballet that might be different from dancing, let's say, swing dance? Um, what's the difference between reading Shakespeare's Hamlet watching a performance of it at the Globe Theater, as I had opportunity to do this last summer, and watching a movie. Well, you have three different media with three different logics that are inviting my sensory uh, apparatus in a very different way. It's inviting my emotions and my imagination to participate in it in a distinct way. Or when I read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, Uh, It's my imagination that is generating all the images. When I see the movie, the filmmaker has created those images for me, and so it's affecting me in a categorically different way. It's a spectrum, but there are categorically different experiences. And I just say, all the merrier, while at the same time, I want to respect the the, the logic and integrity of each medium of art and to say they all have a a distinct role to play in our human life and, and certainly in our society.
Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I would say but part of the challenge when we talk about the arts is a linguistic terminology one. That, that the reason why we stumble over this art and craft is because it goes back to our Latin and Greek terms of, of, of techne and ours. And if you go back far enough, both those terms have a polyvalent sense to that, that, that you can say that the, the art of medicine or the art of war is harkening back to one sense of that term, which we would translate in terms of like skill or craft uh, and its ability to do something or the art of government, uh, the art of love, right? And then in history, eventually, perhaps maybe when you transition from the Renaissance into the modern era, you get this desire to extricate one aspect of art making into now what we call art for art's sake, which is really just a way of saying, I want to attend to the properties of, of copper that has been shaped in a certain form and I'm not really interested in this as a vase, you know, uh, a basin that holds water. I'm interested in how its physical properties make me think about power or strength in the world or delicacy in the world. And so, you know, at some point in history, you do get art acquiring this other sense, which is going to be different, say, from the liberal arts, um, which is this discipline within humanities. So I guess part, partly I would say it, we, we get lost in translation when we're talking to one another. On the other hand, if I can maybe riff off your magic thing, and I did watch that um, show on Netflix, Magic for Humans, and I thoroughly loved it because I think magic is so amazing. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I think the whole explaining thing is is a sore spot for a lot of artists i think maybe there is a way that explaining can have a proper use or a proper context when i go uh maybe see a performance of Ma a box matthews passion um and i have taken a course in classical music and somebody has explained to me the innards of music and classical music and how notes operate together and the theories and the practices that does not diminish my enjoyment of the performance. It enhances it. And then when my wife and I go to a, an exhibit of contemporary art and she gives me a short history of contemporary art and why it is that artists do what they do with the medium. For me, it doesn't diminish. It actually deepens. Um, and I feel like there is that, sense of explaining is providing a kind of, of context that makes the work more intelligible, perhaps as a possibility for more meaningful engagement. That's a good thing. It's maybe the over-explaining or the explaining that becomes a substitute for the direct experience. That, I think, is a fair concern and is a problem, uh, and it does tap into all of our utilitarian pragmatic tendencies in our North American society. That'd be great. Mm, mm. Mm. 
Right. Right. Sure. Sure. You know, I wrote an essay once a number of years ago, essentially a theology of entertainment in defense of pleasure. And what I wanted to make was a case for uh, art for the sake of entertainment, art for the sake of pleasure, art for the sense of that more uh, uh, simple, um, direct, if I can use this in a qualified sense, superficial, um, something that has one level of meaning, <laughs> one level of experience where I can eat a donut. It's not a complicated food group and I ingest it and I have this burst of wowness and that's it. Whereas a few years ago, um, my siblings and I, we, and our respective spouses, we made a, a five course Italian meal for my Italian mother. And that was a rich, multi-level, complex, demanding experience of food. And I, I guess, again, as a theologian, I want to say both of those belong in, in God's economy. Both of those should belong in our human communities. Both of those uh, are ways for us to be fully human, that I can bless, as it were, those who are in the business of making simple things, so long as I guess they would not argue that only simple things matter. And conversely, I want to bless all those complex, difficult, demanding things in our lives and maybe works of art and say those two have a place so long as you don't argue that only those are the real ones. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But you know, it doesn't have to be Michael Bay. It could be, <laughs> it could be the Great British Bake Off. Um, well, y yes, I, uh, partly because I actually think that's that's the essential fabric of of our humanity is is that we take pleasure in very difficult uh, and very difficult and very simple things, whether we are aware of it or not. Um, you know, even those who make the, the Terrence Malick's of the world, if you were to go to his home or his ranch you would not see him entertaining only difficult things. He probably enjoys a simple beer and a nice, you know, cut of ribs. Uh, it's not a complicated, you know, uh, barbecue is, is not a complicated food group. And so if, if that is a way that we can uh, faithfully characterize our human lives, then why not the arts be part of that fabric that it has this range of the simple and superficial uh, all the way to the difficult and the demanding because they're both attending to the simple and the complex nature of our human lives. So to ignore one or the other, I, I think is, is to rob us of some essential element of human flourishing. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> mm. 
Well, I mean, I guess I would say the answer is yes, and then a little asterisk. Sometimes artists get nervous when we talk about the uses of the arts or the purpose of the art. And again, I think it's a little bit of a term confusion. When we say purpose, what do we really mean, right? <clears throat> well, but, but then I would still want to argue, and I, I have these arguments with my art friends and my, my philosopher friends, that even art for art's sake is describing a purpose. That is, you're saying, if I were to observe over there human beings who are really happy, really flourishing, really doing everything they're supposed to do on planet Earth, fulfilling their calling, I would be able to say, oh, look, they do very simple and very complex things, and they enjoy literary fiction, and they enjoy science fiction, you know, and, and it's all in the mix, and it all enables us to flourish. And so, you know, the, the television show Friday Night Lights, which, of course, hits near to home in my, my Texas heart, um, that was made because it was, it was a good story and the story was worth making. It was an end in itself. It didn't need to be anything more. It didn't need to accomplish the purposes of rectifying American football practices in high schools. It was just a good story that was well told. For me, however, it made me want to be a better husband. I found myself with this deep, acute, painful yearning to want to be a better husband. And there wasn't a one to correlation. It was just being immersed in this world over several seasons generated a desire in me in the same way that maybe Hosseini's novel, The Kite Runner, made me weep, <laughs> made me cry, it made me bawl, and it made me want to be a better friend. And, and I guess I want to say, can't those coexist? Can't they operate together, be part of this ecology. We can name them, we can articulate what they are distinctly, but be able to say, is not this world good for food and pleasing to the eye? <laughs> to, to use the language of Genesis 1, can't both be uh, the ways in which we live in the world well? And I, I guess, again, as a theologian, I want to say, yes, yes, very much so. And, and the arts can do a thousand different things because human beings are in the business of doing a thousand different things and they have a thousand different purposes and the arts come along and are participating in this work of making culture, which is a way of making sense of our human lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These things can become kind of latent gifts that they, they then birth at some other time. The... Right. I, 
I, you know, I would say absolutely yes. And maybe the one qualification I would make to, to my argument, because <clears throat> I can imagine somebody pushing back on me and saying that's a nice romantic view of the world, but most human beings actually reject the invitation or the opportunity to experience the arts in this way. And so maybe to quote C.S. Lewis's essay, An Experiment in Criticism, it's not that we have good books and bad books per se, it's that we have good readers and bad readers. There are ways in which our disposition, the way that we are hardwired, the way that we attend to the world actually does result in a, a lesser or greater meaningful experience of the world. So if you come to a work of art only with a hard drive that wants to absorb and consume and take and to utilize, then yes, you will get very, very little and you will result in a relatively malnourished uh, human life or maybe a two-dimensional rather than three-dimensional. And can you subsist on that till the day you die? Sure. You can subsist on, on lots of crummy foods until at some point. Yes, you, you can, but it's the difference between subsistence and flourishing. And I think flourishing does require a certain active, attentive, um, charitable, humble approach to people and to others. And again, that's easier said than done. And it requires a great deal of courage and, and honesty to maintain that posture because the world is a painful place and, and we are wounded in a host of ways. And that wounding experiences causes us to shut down and to calcify and to, sh you know, shove down into places that, this is, that we'd rather not attend to because it's so painful. And so, yes, again, as a, maybe as a pastor, I would say human beings are complicated and they're broken for any number of reasons. And so there is a, a there's good work to be done by not just pastors and theologians, teachers and coaches and politicians and, and friends to come alongside one another and to enable our hearts and minds and bodies to open up so that we can more actively um, receive the good um, that certainly we would offer each other. And again, maybe I would say that God might offer to us through the arts. <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be fun. Yes. <laughs> well, maybe I, I guess I would say partly it, it involves learning to be better listeners, better lookers, if I can use alliteration there. Uh, when we listen to others, when we listen to the world, when we look, when we smell, when we taste, when we touch, to really give it the time that it deserves. And I, I think maybe that's just kind of a fundamental principle of, of, of friendship and good relationship and good neighborliness is that we actually give it the care-filled time that is required. And I think that's true of my marriage. It's true of my work as a father, it's work as a friend. Every time I rush or hurry by or try to cut corners, they suffer. And I suffer as a teacher. I suffer as a scholar. I suffer as, as, a, as a citizen. When I try to take those <clears throat> shortcuts of one another 
And so the same work that is required of loving my wife, loving my children, loving my friends, loving strangers, loving my students, is the same work that is involved in becoming a good uh, maker of art and a good receiver of art. It's that art of listening, art of attending, art of learning, uh, art of being humble enough to say, I don't know, will you teach me? Um, the art of being humble enough to say that, th that there's something else to be had, that there's something better or truer or, again, gooder, to use that term, uh, I don't have to settle. I don't have to assume that I have figured it all out. Um, and again, you know, these things happen with postures of humility that happen when we choose to go experience something maybe rather different than ourselves, when we travel the world, when we read outside of our tradition. Uh, those are the ways I think that we, we cultivate muscles that then turn into habits that then result in instincts. And, and, and that's an instinct of, of a way to be human in the world. And that takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of care and it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of good friends. So it's, it's not easily come by, but it's not rocket science either. So, so there's hope for everybody. No, I'm not. Hmm. Okay. Okay. That's fine. Hmm. Yeah, sure. Mm hmm Sure. No. No, you know, right now, when I drive my daughter back and forth to school, we're listening on... on um, audio, uh, C.S. Lewis's The Last Book and the Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle. And I have to say, you know, I've, I've read it many times, but uh, just listening to bits and pieces, I, I find myself absorbing that story told so well. I, I think it's Patrick Stewart who's telling the story. I, I hear the qualities of his voice, that the, the sensory kinetic qualities of his voice and the way that he um, provides detail to the different characters. And I find that m m my heart, my emotions are stirred. And then I see the story played out in, in my imagination. And it does, the whole that comes together, it's, you know, it's, it's a metaphor for home for our true home. And I think that's what all really good art does, whether it's simple or, or complex, is it's, it's tapping into our, our senses and awakening our emotions and activating our, 
our imaginations in order to perceive some dimension of our true home. And that's why if our hearts truly are open, we, we just find ourselves having this happy, sad cry because we know that our present lives are not our true home, um, but they can become foretastes and, and um, an actual uh, taste, you know, of that true home. Thank you. It'll be out in the uh, summer. It's called Glimpses of the New Creation, uh, Worship and the Formative Power of the Arts. And then I have another book that will be coming right after that. That would be it's called Honest to God, The Psalms and the Life of Faith. So those are two books coming out soon. Thank you, David. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.